0: Take your seats. All righty, good morning, Austin Stone, my name is Ross, I'm one of the congregation pastors here and an elder and part of the preaching team here at the church, and it's always just a privilege to be able to bring the word to you. We are back in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 5, and we're going to be from verse 27. This morning. It is important to remember where we are in the text. We're going verse by verse, line by line, but the immediate context, at the very least, of the text is important for us to bear in mind today. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. He is offering people a new type of life a blessed type of life, but it means, to be sure, giving up on the pursuits of our previous lives. It means going against the grain of this world into an upside down kingdom and following Jesus into a new sacrificial, loving, blessed, joyful way of life that looks nothing like the one we would be tempted to build for ourselves. Now, now that's the, the broader context of the sermon. We're in a section of the sermon as well, and Harlem showed us two weeks ago that this section of the sermon starts to deal with human relationships, not just the state of our own heart with the Lord, but how we interact with others and some of the ways that we have to change the ways that we see our relationships and interactions with others as a result of being citizens of this new kingdom. And so in a profound and in some parts alarming manner, Jesus confronts human interactions around anger, lust, marriage, promise keeping, revenge, and love. And so just a light topical sermon series that Jesus uses to launch his public ministry. Today, we're gonna be examining his teaching on lust. Welcome. Now I know that makes some of you uncomfortable. Some of you, even churchy ones, right, are already examining exit possibilities, all right, and moving around a little bit in your seat because you know this text and you know what's coming. Some of you are visitors this morning and you are very uncomfortable right now and you are giving a murderous side eye to the person who invited you I don't blame you and I would encourage you to go listen to the sermon on murder from two weeks ago uh, because I think it might help you as you deal with your damaged relationship as you walk out from this place. But I want to acknowledge the tension that we feel and I want you to let you know that I feel it too and that the leaders of this church feel it too. This has been a very difficult sermon for me to prep and I imagine it's going to be a difficult sermon for us to preach, there is a lot of tension on this that we must acknowledge from the get-go. Well, well, why? Well, a few reasons. Firstly, I know that the church and our sector of Christendom has failed miserably in terms of our hypocrisy on sexual ethic. And so we are continually yelling at the world about their immorality and yet not a week goes by when it is not revealed that a Christian leader in a prominent position of power and authority was failing to live out the very sexual ethic that we were yelling at the world about. Our house is not in good order. Just today, a study was released showing 700 cases of abuse in Southern Baptist churches, many of them in our very state, many of them in churches where pastors were preaching this text on the danger of lust and then failing to restrain their own lust and living it out in criminal and heinous and incredibly damaging ways. Our house isn't in good order. Secondly, I feel attention because as a preacher of the word, I don't want to be the dude that Jesus is gonna condemn later on in the text when he says, woe unto you, you teachers of the law and you scribes and you Pharisees. You put burdens upon people's shoulders. You pile them up and you don't lift a finger to help them. And I worry that often we have done that in the church. Be like, don't be lusting, right? Don't do it, stop. And you're like, you're right. Can anyone help me? No. And uh, we, we do this all the time. And so people walk out from here burdened and buckled over and like, he's right, I'm disgusting, we should change, I don't know how. I don't know, and I don't wanna be that guy. I think part of our covenantal purity movement culture has led to this. And I was part of it, right? Where we would lead people to a momentary decision to live a life of purity and abstinence, good outcome but we would rely on momentary manipulation to get that decision done, instead of relying on decades of discipleship to help people live that decision out. We have failed in this space. Thirdly, I'm full of tension this morning, because the world thinks we're mad <laughs> in this space. They think we're mad. And so the tension, the temptation is to go like, mm, maybe we are a bit, let's dial back a bit, right? Let's, let's not talk about that this much. Let's say this isn't actually a big deal in the broader scheme of all the things we could be talking about in the world. Let's, let's not harp on this one because it's not such a big deal really. Well, the problem is Jesus speaks about it as a big deal. And there's no one more gracious or kind or wise than him. And so if he speaks about it, we should speak about it. What does he say? Here's what he says, verse 27. Everyone okay? So far. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's where you stroke your chin and go, that's wise. Mm -hmm. It's good, Jesus, good tracking with you. What's the second point? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, that's where a lot of the chin scratching stops, right? And suddenly we're, furiously trying to find cross-references, updating Twitter, like, oh, it didn't sign up for this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now what on earth are we supposed to do with that? This sounds like awful trouble for a lot of us, right? It has been said that you know Christians don't actually take the Bible literally because so many of them have both of their eyes and both of their hands, and that's true. Well, let's go through it and try to break it down a little bit today. I'm gonna be really simple today because the text is actually simple. (laughs) It's not hard to understand what Jesus is saying but I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help us to apply. I'm gonna try to answer three questions. What was Jesus addressing is the first question. He's addressing a particular issue in the context. I wanna answer what was it. Secondly, what did he say about it? What is his response to that issue in the culture? And then lastly, what should we do in response to what Jesus teaches to that particular issue. Firstly, what was Jesus addressing? Well, broadly speaking, Jesus was addressing a diminishing of the law's requirements and a distortion of the law's role. This is what the teachers of the law were doing. They were teaching the law, but they were diminishing its requirements and changing its role to be something that it was never supposed to be. More narrowly, Jesus was addressing in their day and age an inappropriate and distorted view of sexual purity and what actually constituted sexual sin according to God. He was addressing a distorted view of sexual purity and what actually constituted sexual sin in accordance to God. Now listen. I love teaching through the Bible verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book. It's my thing, I enjoy that a great deal. There is an inherent danger as we do it that sometimes we get so stuck in a text that we forget it's broader context in the scriptures and we forget it's immediate context even in the chapters in which we find the text. And so we must be cautious with verses like 27 to 30 that we don't read before and after it because it's gonna, it's gonna help us if we do, right? And so sometimes we get so locked into that that if we just spend five minutes reading what came before and after it, we go, oh, wait a minute, that helps me a great deal. Jesus is using six statements that go, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, He is comparing and contrasting the ways in which the teachers of the law used the law and the way that the law was actually supposed to be used. He isn't correcting the law because when he speaks literally of the law, he will say, it is written. And yet he will say here, you have heard it said. And so he's speaking of the collective teachings that go with The law. So let's zoom out a tiny bit because he's doing something specific and deliberate and it's important we don't miss it. Go back to verse 17. We did this a few weeks ago, but I know most of us in our social media, instant news kind of era have memories of goldfishes, right? And so uh, we forget three weeks ago, I don't know what happened, but a few weeks ago we looked at this and here's what Jesus said. Do not think, verse 17, same chapter, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he cannot be doing that. He cannot be saying the law doesn't apply. He's not doing that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's coming to show the fullness of them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, what is he doing then? Well, he's gonna tell us. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That is what he is addressing. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What are the scribes and the Pharisees doing? According to Jesus, they are relaxing the commandments of the law and making them accomplishable and self-justifying, which was never the purpose of the law. The scriptures tell us, if you read the broader context, the law condemns us. It tells us we cannot. They were reading the law and going, hey, you know what? I think if we take the bare minimum of this, I think we can do it. I think we can get this done. Jesus is addressing that. What follows is six examples of exactly how that is happening. We looked at murder and what was happening with the teachers in in, in terms of the law about murder was like they were saying, hey, the law says you mustn't murder and that's all it demands of you in terms of your anger. Be as angry and as hostile and as bitter and as unforgiving as you like. Think murderous things. Tweet murderous statements. Say murderous threats under your breath, just don't actually do it. And if you manage to keep that line, God is chuffed to bits with you. That means he's pleased, okay? He's he's just so stoked because you didn't murder someone and he's going, excellent, well done. How many did you murder today? None. (laughs) (laughs) You're the best, you're the best. Look at my peeps just rocking the law. Now that's what he's addressing. The same thing is happening with lust. What does the law say? Well, very clearly it does say this from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy five. Jesus is quoting them specifically. Do not commit adultery, the law says that. So therefore they were seeing that as the be all and end all of sexual purity. Do anything else and it's all good, you're fine. And so one of the questions I get the most as a pastor, especially with young people is like, hey, uh, so where's the line like on sexual immorality, like the line? What can I do? What can I not do? Just give me a line, right? And that's what is happening in that context and the teachers of the law were going like, well, adultery. So don't sleep with someone else's wife and you're all good. You're in the clear. Do whatever you like. Now scholars suggest that this was playing out in particularly troubling ways in the context. Look at this quote from Nigerian scholar, Tokumbo Adeyemo. He says, the general understanding in Jewish society was that a woman needed to be chased before marriage and faithful afterwards. A man, however, was free to have sexual liaisons as long as he was discreet and did not involve a married woman, which would infringe the rights of another man. The people of Jesus' day were very modern in this matter. Ah, friends, the horror of that patriarchal society where wives were seen largely as possessions. And what it resulted in was a sexual ethic for young men that said, do whatever you like as long as you don't take from another man. Our society has advanced and moved, praise God. But our sexual ethic still remains, do whatever you like as long as you don't hurt anybody else. That's fine, then God, no problem. No problem. Jesus was overthrowing that sort of craziness. Jesus was saying, listen, don't think for a second that it is fine with God when you use people to satisfy your own desires. Don't pretend that God is fine with that, he is not. You are an embodied soul. And so what you do with your body matters to your soul but you are an embodied soul. And so the state of your soul will be deeply impacted by the way you walk out the tensions of life with the needs and desires of your body. We don't get to just escape it in some ethereal manner, we've gotta live in this flesh. Jesus is saying, and how we live in this flesh matters. He wasn't changing the law, he was rebuking their misuse and indeed abuse of the Lord to justify their own sexual immorality. All right, second question, we're making good progress. Most people are still in the room, praise God, all right? That is what he was addressing. What did Jesus actually then say? So if that's what he's addressing, what did he actually say? Look at it again, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, To you, That is the statement of authority of a teacher who's saying, I'm drawing a new line in the sand. If you wanna follow me, here's the new line. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, everyone who looks at a person with lustful intent, I'll speak about the pronouns in a second, has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. Jesus says, guys, you want a line? You wanna know where the line of purity and holiness is? It's way behind you. You crossed it ages ago and you don't even acknowledge it. That is why you aren't receiving the blessing that comes with being poor in spirit. That is why you don't get the blessing that is promised when you mourn your sin. You're not mourning your sin because you didn't even consider that you had crossed the line. Now let's stop for a second and examine a couple of things that Jesus isn't saying here because um, uh, we can make some unhelpful suppositions. Firstly, Jesus isn't saying that sexual desire is sinful. This is what I grew up thinking, right? I grew up in quite a fundamentalist tradition. I'm grateful for, for, for many of the things that it taught me. But when I hit puberty, man, I just felt terrible and awful and ashamed, because I I'd had some sexual desire, right? And just by the way, if you're young in the room, it kind of sticks with you. It changes, but it stays with you. Don't hope you'll just grow out of it or marry out of it. That's a great lie. It's, it sticks with you, it's something that's in your heart. But I had no way to process it, right? No one came and told me and said, what you're going through is normal, right? And, and we can disciple you to help you stay holy as you go through this. And so I thought all feelings of desire were wicked and depraved. Did that drive me closer to God and His church or further away? away, because you just feel shame all of the time. Jesus here clearly condemns looking with lustful intent. He's very clear on the language that he uses. That is a determined look of desire, a longing to have something. This is not an instinctive recognition of the attractiveness of another person. That is what comes after the instinctive looking. The first look is not the issue, friends. It is the second. And what follows in our minds and hearts that leads us down a path of lust. A.B. Bruce said, the look is not casual, but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary, But cherished, that is the real issue. When we cherish these things and let them build and we long to dwell on them and form fantasy lives about them and we start to look at people as objects for our own fulfillment, that is what he is condemning. Secondly, you ready? Though the pronouns are masculine focused here, Jesus isn't saying that this problem is only masculine in nature. We have given into this a little bit in the church, and so usually what happens when you preach sermons like this results in all the dudes in the room sitting with their heads bowed low, hoping to not be noticed, and all the ladies crossing their arms in disgust that they have to put up with such a revolting species, right? (laughs) And both leave condemned as a result. Friends, as I read the scripture, And as I walk with people pastorally, I have learned something, right? This is gonna be profound. I'm hoping this will be part of my pastoral quote legacy. You ready for it? Ready? Here's what I've learned. Ladies be lusting too. (laughs) Potiphar's wife, I was reading that text the other day. She liked what she saw in young Joseph. The scripture tells us that. She liked what she saw. She was like, dude! He was ripped, he was young, he was doing manual labor. It's the trifecta. (laughs) And the scriptures tell us she goes to him again and again. It's not a momentary, oh, sorry, what was I thinking? Day after day, she's like, I must have you. Now friends, it is true that lust and stimulus that leads to it is very different in men and in women. It was always said that men are visually stimulated and ladies weren't, but that conclusion is changing slightly by the, by the modern research. It turns out that the reward delivery mechanisms in our prefrontal cortexes do work differently though between men and women. Um, it's something that is puzzling, it's, it's quite funny to read because scientists are trying to put this together because it's puzzling scientists who insist that gender is nothing but a social construct, but our MRIs react differently. Yeah, it's a visual stimulus. Now, it's not that men are visually stimulated and women aren't. It's just the reward mechanism, the way that the, 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 kind of the reward stimulus is delivered in the brain is different in men than it is from women. But it is changing over time. The fastest growing consumer group of online pornography is young women. And anecdotally, five of the last six marriages that I have worked with that have suffered the betrayal of adultery, it was the wife that strayed. Spurred on by a period of lust, lusting after someone who wasn't her husband. Now ladies, I don't say this to shame you. I say this to recognize you. We patronize you when we diminish your abilities and we patronize you when we diminish your ability to sin, just like men. That's equality, right? Equal inabilities, including ability to sin. And so, ladies, don't assume this is a morning where you get to dial out, right? Many of, many of you are wrestling this in your heart. Thirdly, he is not saying, I think this is important, that all sexual sin has the same impact or consequence. He's not saying that. It would be folly of us to think that Jesus is somehow saying that all sexual sin is the same in terms of its consequences and the severity of the earthly pain that it causes. That just isn't true. Now listen, he is saying all sexual sin is serious and all of it leaves us standing condemned before God in terms of His righteous requirements, all of it. We don't walk away justified just because we stopped short of adultery, which is what they were thinking in the day. But, or, and, don't feel so overwhelmed by shame today that you can't come in, out into the light because this is a, a lie that Satan so cleverly uses that someone who's really struggling with lust uh, reads this text and goes like, well, I've gone all the way to adultery in my mind anyway, so I might as well just keep going. I've crossed the Rubicon, I've gone across the big chasm and so I'm the worst of the worst, so I'm just gonna hang out here in my shame. Don't do that, don't do that. If it isn't adultery yet, that is a small grace. It's a small grace, (laughs) turn around now. It's still a massive offense to God, stop. While you can, let us help you. I don't even know how we can, but let us help you. Imagine, imagine we created the kinds of church communities where people could confess their sin and be discipled in their brokenness and not be expected to be fixed by tomorrow. Stop. Don't hide in shame. If it has turned to adultery, confess. Confess. The one who you actually fear most, in terms of knowing, already knows. God already knows. All right. If it isn't that, then the question may remain for us though, why did Jesus make lust such a big deal? I mean, we can see the massively damaging impact of adultery But lust doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? Shouldn't we just take it easy on this? Well, Jesus won't let us. He sets the bar on sexual sin. And we should remember before we reject some form of outdated puritanism that Jesus is more gracious and wise than anyone else in this room, right? And so you don't get to go like, I just play the grace card because I'm a Christian. Well, the Christ in Christian set this bar. He came up with this. And so I hear a lot of people in kind of liberalism in terms of Christianity going like, I'm not so obsessed with what uh, like evangelicals have, have, have said about sexual ethic, because that's just puritanism. I think we should be more like Jesus. I go, good, 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 including this part where he sets this bar on moral ethics. Let's be more like Jesus. Yes, uh, yes and amen. Uh, yes and amen. I just read the red letters. This is in red. It's serious. Red. (laughs) Why does Jesus detest lust? Six reasons, first one, lust actually diminishes sex. It diminishes the sacred bond of intimacy and the cost that it takes of sacrificial covenant relationship to something that is purely a physical impulse. It takes something beautiful and sacred and makes it animalistic and cheap. The Bishop N.T. Wright said this, in our present culture, I love this quote, sexual activity has become almost completely detached from the whole business of building up communities and relationships and has degenerated simply into a way of asserting one's right to choose one's own pleasure in one's own way. To put it starkly, instead of being a sacrament, sex has become a toy. So God isn't looking down at the world and just going, oh guys, it's just way too much sex, whoa. He's going, no, no, you've diminished it. You've made it less than what it should be. You're taking something sacred, you're making it a toy, it's terrible. Secondly, lust dehumanizes. It diminishes, it also dehumanizes. Now listen, this is key, listen. It does this both to the luster and it does it to the object of their lust. For the luster, when I say I cannot help it, it is simply a physical urge. Well, then you have dehumanized yourself to an animal with uncontrollable urges and impulses. And we have the imago Day and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, which means we are not simply beasts. I have a puppy living in my house, don't really even know how she got there. <laughs> she cannot control any of her impulses, and I expect her to, right? She should do better. We've got better standards than that in my house, right? But I'm hoping my kids grow up to not respond like that puppy for the rest of their life, right? Oh, I'm excited, I'm in the kitchen. Oh, I've gotta pee. (laughs) In the kitchen. We would say, oh, show some restraint, right? That's a physical need, show some restraint. Why? You're a human, you're a person. You have dignity and value and worth but it also dehumanizes the one being lusted. It turns them just simply into an object, often a two-dimensional object for our own satisfaction. I had the tremendous privilege in another church a few years ago of interviewing a, a woman who had come to Christ who had been rescued from the sex industry, and I mean rescued. She was one of the most prominent adult stars on the internet, and I interviewed her in a sermon. And we had so many people come up to us afterwards who had actually watched her content before, it had been part of their struggle. And they said, it is way tougher to lust after someone when you stop for a moment and consider that they might be a sister in Christ. Third one, lust in prisons. Lust in the way that fires our brains is addictive, it's addictive and progressive by nature. And because it is attached to shame, it keeps people wrapped up in secrecy. It ends up feeling like the opposite of the freedom that we think it will provide. As evidence, just listen to this, this stat floored me this week. As evidence of the horrifying impact of this, a recent study showed that between 2015 and 2017, in the space of three years, human beings watched a combined total of one million years of pornography on one website alone. A million years of combined human experience. We could have colonized Mars. And what did we do? That just shows me that it's imprisoning us. Why would we give a million years of combined human experience to it? Because people get imprisoned By it, it looks like freedom, and it's not. Fourth, lust lies, We all know this. It's related but distinct. It makes promises that it can never deliver on. It promises satisfaction and experiences that just never deliver. It lies about sex, it lies about intimacy, it lies about satisfaction, and then when all is said and done, it lies about who you are as a result of believing it's lies in the first place. Fifth, related but distinct, Lust escalates. Because it cannot deliver on the promises that it offers you, it has to offer you another promise. It's how these reward mechanisms for behavior work in our brains. One long look becomes a longer look, becomes social media stalking, becomes inappropriate messages, becomes, becomes, becomes. Instagram and a harmless fitness account becomes Snapchat, becomes porn, becomes desire for hookup, becomes, becomes, becomes. Lastly, it's such a big deal because it causes shame. The Bible is very particular about saying sexual sin causes defilement. It's not the only thing that does it, but it does it every time. And so it keeps the people of God miserable. So many of you wanting a new season in your walk with God, but this shame haunts you, stains your soul. You don't think there's a way back. Even now, the enemy is telling you, if they knew, my..." See the danger, Christ in his infinite love and wisdom is waving big warning signs telling us this is serious, it damages our souls, it taints our relationship with God and with others and with ourselves. Let me land this plane, okay. What does Jesus say we should do as a result? Let's look at the text again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus saying? A few things. Firstly, be extreme on the avoidance of temptation. Be extreme on the avoidance of temptation. Obviously, because we know from broader biblical context how Jesus views the body. This is not actually a call to physical maiming, right? Because you could maim yourself and still have memory. You could take your eyes out and still have. Memory of fantasy and still lust in that way. Some of the church fathers took this quite literally and it didn't work for them. They discovered they still had imaginations that were capable of lust. Tertullian and Ambrose thought that there should be no sex in the church, right? They thought it might even hasten the return of Jesus Christ if we don't populate the earth. They said they would rather see the end of the human race than have Christians have sex. Jerome, who lived from 347 to 420 AD, he used to throw himself into a Thorn tree from his chariot when he felt sexual desire for a woman, so that the pain would overwhelm him and distract him. He ended up very scarred indeed. Eusebius claimed that Origen castrated himself after reading this text. Many dispute that um, was true, but, but that's what Eusebius claimed. What Jesus is asking us to do, though, friends, listen, it's not physical maiming, it's to be sacrificial and radical in our pursuit of holiness. What does that look like for you? I don't have to give you those tips and tools today. What does that look like for you? You know where you're being tempted. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Just get rid of it. It won't change your your heart's ability to lust, but it will stop the active stream of fantasy content that's currently being delivered to you. Be prepared to look like an old fashioned fool. Draw some boundaries around social media, TV, movies, internet, and in-person flirtation. I once got called the least flirtatious man that someone had ever met. I was so stoked. I was like, thank you. They were trying to insult me. They're like, you're not good at this flirting thing. I'm like, praise the Lord. (laughs) Friends, it's so much tougher now than it was. We need to be more extreme now, not less. In Ephesians five, Paul calls for extreme measures. He says that sexual immorality and crude joking shouldn't even be named among the people of God. We ignore that verse. We think it's fine. We can be talking about this stuff, joking about this stuff, justifying this stuff all the time. Paul goes, no, no, do you know what a big deal is? No, be a prude for Jesus' kingdom's sake. Look at what N.T. Wright again says. I love this vision, of countercultural rebellion, but it's also a sad indictment of our defeat, I'm nearly done. Throughout the early centuries of Christianity, look at this, I love this. When every kind of sexual behavior ever known to the human race was widely practiced throughout ancient Greek and Roman societies, the Christians insisted that sexual activity was to be restricted to the marriage of a man and a woman. The rest of the world, then as now, thought they were mad. The difference, alas, is that today, half the church seems to think so too. Let's focus less on policing the sexual ethic of the world. Let's clean up house a bit in God's church. Next one, run away from temptation when it comes. You will still be tempted. What do you do? Run (laughs) with urgency. Where? Away, (laughs) in the opposite direction. I love the story of Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. Dude gets deroped as he runs through. He knows, he knows the implications of that moment. Day after day, she tempts him and he runs. You know what scripture tells us to do with sexual immorality? Skate up to the line, see how close you can get and stop just before adultery. No, flee, run in the opposite direction. I would rather look like a fool in today's culture than be like Esau who traded his birthright for a single and momentary physical experience. Last one, what do we do? Turn to Jesus. The most fulfilled, faithful, and complete human who ever lived was single, never lusted, never acted on the desires that would have been operating on his flesh. He felt them to be sure. As part of his human form, he didn't get to escape that. But he never turned it into lust and he would have had many opportunities to do so. You know what we would call that today? Less than human. We would call that cruelty. We would say, why would you do that? That's, that's diminishing your humanity and yet he's the most fulfilled human who ever lived. We have made this a basic need, a human right. The life of Jesus says something else. But think for a second with me as I close about Jesus facing this head on. He knows what that temptation feels like, he knows. Turn to him if you are tempted. He goes on a three and a half year camping trip with 12 dudes, one of whom wants to kill him. And then a woman washes his feet with her hair. Imagine what she smelt like compared to Peter. (laughs) Yet without sin. But he knows. Turn to him if you have failed. Don't turn to guilt and shame. Don't hide in the shadows. He calls you into the light. Today, maybe he has convicted you of the depths of your sin, good. He forgives sinners. (laughs) So be poor in spirit, mourn your sin. You will show that poverty of spirit by valuing your righteousness more than your reputation and stepping into the light today. Then, friends, I know Satan's taking some of you out or he's about to. He loves this avenue. You know how you defeat him? You run to his enemy. The apostle John reminded us. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you must confess, you must. Maybe that's the most radical act you could do today is tell someone and ask them to walk with you. Probably won't fix overnight. Tell someone. Maybe this morning feels like a warning shot You're busy fanning some sparks into life. Turn, please, turn, run away. Maybe today feels like a condemnation. You're sitting in a burning building, no one knows. There's a chance today, there's breath in your lungs, there's a chance, run out. Run out of that house and get some help. Satan will try to convince you right now that no one needs to know and that you have it under control. Silence him, run to his enemy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. It's not always uh, comfortable or easy for us to deal with, but it is life if we will just believe it. And so Lord, I I prayed at the beginning that the Holy Spirit would speak today. I pray that He continues to do so now. I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to some in this room who have never had a relationship with Jesus. And one of the things that has been stopping them is some kind of version of an outdated sexual ethic that they viewed. I pray that today they see, my goodness, Jesus loves me and wants me to live a life of freedom, not the life of slavery that lust is currently bringing into my life. I'll oh, free them this morning, please, God. Lord, I pray um, this morning for men and women in this place who are busy just fanning some sparks into flames, seeing what, seeing what would would burst into a little bit of flame, but that it's under control, it's under control. i oh, warn them this morning, please, God that you're not some outdated, moralistic deity who's just trying to ruin their fun. You're trying to spare their souls from so much damage, warn them. I pray for those, Father, who sit here condemned this morning. Oh, so many years of my life, sat in services like this, tears down my cheeks, feeling like a sham and a hypocrite and defiled but determining in my heart to fix it somehow tomorrow but never bringing it to the light. Oh God, please help them. Help them to run to you and to find hope in the bride of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to clean up our own house that we would have a humble and gentle posture with the world, but we would be ruthless when it comes to killing sin in our own lives and in our midst. Preserve us, protect us, change us, help us. In Jesus' name we pray.